If you have your Bibles with you this morning or your favorite Bible app, we'll be continuing through Matthew 5. Just as a way of reminder, we're traveling through the Sermon on the Mount in the next month and a half as we continue learning uh, what it is that the Lord, why He emphasized what He did in these particular teachings for two chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're going to be today in three verses only. 13 through 16, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If you found your spot, would you plan, uh, please stand for the reading of Christ's Word. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a, on its stand and it gives light to everything in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this very day, the gift that it is to your uh, entire creation, that it was not owed to us, that it was given freely out of your love towards us, and that we woke up this morning, we gathered all of our family together, we got ready, we got ourselves ready, and we came here in order to put our hearts and our heads and our hands and the entirety of who we are under the Lordship of you. And so how we do that right now is that we exercise, um, we exercise our hearts in such a way that we are listening and attentive to your word. So open our hearts by your spirit so that we can receive it and that they are fertile in order for them to be planted and so that we can then live them out in every area of our life. So Father, do that work this very moment so that you can be glorified and your Son can be glorified in the power of the Spirit. We offer these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, last year of 2019, we said it was a year of small things. And, and if I can be very transparent and clear with you, the year of 2020, as I see it, and as you know, the prayer life that I've been working through for the past uh, month or two, I keep hearing the word of intentionality, of being intentional in what we do as a body. And when I think of the word intentional, I'm talking about being very deliberate in what we do. And so when I look at us at Hickory Grove, what does it mean for us to be intentional and deliberate? Well, I keep hearing these four words pop up again and again as well. Worship. Community, care, and discipleship. Once it comes to being intentional in worship, we gather here on every single Sunday, and we gather in order to give our lives over to the hearing of the Word, but also giving our bodies over to sing the praises of our King. That's an intentionality of worship where He moves in and through us so that we can reciprocate that back and to be able to exercise that wherever we're called. 
intentionality in worship, intentionality in community, that we gather not on Sundays, that we gather not on Wednesdays, that we gather in sporadic moments throughout the year in order to understand that it is Christ who has gathered us. He has made us this particular body, and He is growing and maturing us in so many ways. So a community. Care. What does it look like for us to care for one another intentionally, but also care for those in our community, in our city, and beyond, and exercise that care with the love of the gospel itself, reminding ourselves that we were loved so much that we love in return. That type of care, a care for one another and a care for others. And then discipleship. That word disciple is crammed right in there. What does it mean for us as Hickory Grove to be discipled underneath Christ, but also disciple each other and disciple our neighbors and our friends and our family members or even a stranger? What does it mean for us to exercise that discipleship before others and say, what does it mean for you and I to follow Christ? That's the type of discipleship and the intentionality and the deliberateness of that in area, every area of our life. So underneath each sermon, each week, I'm going to try to interweave that word intentionality. In some weeks, I might... Um, Look at the intentionality of worship, the intentionality of community care, discipleship. But you should be able to hear intentionality and deliberateness in each sermon. So hopefully we can stick to that plan for the next 50 or so weeks ahead of us. If there's one thing that I have noticed in the past 10 to 12 years of my own Christian walk is that there is a growing appreciation of feasting. I hope you too enjoy feasting, of eating. I think we all do. But there's a growing appreciation of food the older I get. And on top of that, the more that I read the Scriptures, a more appreciation of what happens. When I first began my walk with Christ at about 19-ish years old, um, I had naively been taught a very... I would say shallow view, a very misunderstanding perspective of what it means to have a body, what it means to have the senses of you know tasting and smelling and seeing and hearing and feeling, and really how Scripture talks about the body and how the Scripture talks about the senses. I was taught that redemption was only about a soul, that redemption had nothing to do with your body. I was taught that redemption was only about the next life, not this one. I was only taught that redemption was about the heart and not the entire human person. And so it was very common in many churches that I had visited to downplay and even to neglect the body and overemphasize and even highlight the spirit or soul, that immaterial part of us. Church, I think this is a complete warping and distortion of Scripture, what it has to say about the body. From the beginning of the Bible, we see that there's a God who fashions both body and soul. In that same beginning, humanity is deceived through what? An act of eating. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of a God who graciously delivers manna from heaven, food. 
He instructs his people in animal sacrifices. So they take other bodies and they sacrifice those bodies, which would have been in our day just a big old barbecue. They are sacrificing these animals, but they're also partaking of a meal, a feast in these times. You also see throughout the Old Testament that the word uh, is used with metaphors such as honey and milk. When you take of the word, it is like honey to the tongue. It is like milk that satisfies the body. And then if you move into the New Testament, we discover this same God taking on human flesh. He tabernacles with us, John says, or tents with us. We might use the word today, incarnates himself with us. This God is in human flesh, and what does he do? He feeds thousands of people. He shares meals with prostitutes. He even adapts the Passover meal, and he creates what we call the Lord's Supper of bread and wine. And lastly, when we see Jesus returning in the end of the story in Revelation, we find that He inaugurates and installs this new kingdom on earth. And what does He do? He sets up a great banquet, a great meal, where all of the people gather and they feast with this King. I hope you're hungry. If there's one thing that I've done so far is I've given you a little hunger, not only of physical food, but of the Word this morning. I say all of that really to say this. It is in and through the senses, the body as a whole, that I think we learn to sense and experience the mercies of God every single day. Let me say it this way. I think you'll see today in the three verses that we have in front of us how Jesus plays to our senses. Specifically how He plays to the tasting And he also plays to the seeing of certain things in order to connect them to the redemptive mission of the church. And we'll see that we're all called to be evangelists. Evangelists. So before I jump into these verses, if there's one thing you know about my past is that I was trained in graduate school in philosophy. And there's one thing that my philosophy mentor always said, Clarify, clarify, clarify. Clarify your terms. Tell people what you really mean by certain words so that they clearly understand what it is that you're getting at. That word evangelist. Do you already have pictures in your head of what evangelist is? Evangelism. You got a certain picture in your head of what evangelism is? Evangelist, you might be thinking of a preacher in a three-piece suit. Right? Evangelism, you might be thinking of going door to door and telling people about the good news of Jesus. Well, let me clarify my terms, or really clarify Scripture's terms on these. First, yes, the Bible does mention how specifically, specifically people are called to be evangelists, which was in a unique way of telling, teaching, preaching about Jesus. They were called out in order to spread this particular announcement. But at the same time, Scripture is very clear that we're all evangelists. If you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. You tell people with your lips and lives who this Jesus is. Evangelist 
that word in English comes from a Greek word, euangelion. It just means a good announcement, a good news that's been given. Every single person who has died with Christ through faith and baptized in Him and allegiance to Him is an evangelist. You are a good newser, we could say. You are the one who is transformed by the announcement that Jesus is King and you go and tell people with the whole of who you are. Not just with your mouth, with the whole of who you are. Second point. Since you're a good newser, this doesn't mean you're supposed to travel door to door. Have you heard the good news about Christ? That might include that, but that's not just that. I want you to hear me saying that. It's not just that in being evangelist. It's not just evangelizing. To be a part of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, it means that you're a character. You're a player in this grand redemptive story and drama that He is displaying before us and you're announcing not with just your heart not with just your head but the entirety of your humanity that Jesus is indeed king so evangelism is not just this door-to-door sale that I would say is a weakening of the word evangelism evangelism is a way of life The Jesus way of life that announces and demonstrates His kingly reign in these areas. Ready? In your personal life. In your home. In your work. In your friendships. In your marriages. In your parenting. In your hobbies. In your eating and drinking. In your neighborhoods. In your feasting and parties. In your finances. In your hopes and dreams. Until your final breath. It is a way of life that announces that this Jesus is indeed the King. And that every square inch of your life, Christian, is a demonstration of that. So I want this to be in the back of our minds as we work through these three verses this morning. So let's do that. Verse 13. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its tastiness, or some of your translations might say saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. First, I think we don't need to impose our uses of the word salt on the Jewish understanding of salt. Of course, just like us, they would have used salt to add flavor to their meals and their dining. And similar to the uses that we have uh, really before the invention of the refrigerator, They would have used it to preserve food as well, specifically meat. But salt for Israelite was more than just a flavoring. It was more than just a preserving of food in that day. Salt was used to talk about a binding relationship between two people. It was a covenant between one another. And in fact, the Old Testament talks about this several times. For instance, when David becomes king of Israel, it is referred to as a covenant of salt. Why? There's a binding of relationship between this new king and Yahweh, God Himself. On top of this, when the Israelites are offered their animal sacrifices in the temple, when they were given these to God, they were expected to season them with salt. Leviticus 2.13. Why? It was this binding relationship that as the Israelite entered into the temple, 
to salt the sacrifice was a recognition that this God had loved them first and he had bound himself to them and they were binding themselves back to him. It was this covenant between the two. So I think it's easy for us to see that there's this close connection between salt and a binding relationship. When you would covenant or bind yourself with someone in Israel, you would have a meal with them. And you know what you would do? You would salt that meal in order to show and declare that you were making and binding a friendship at that time and that moment. Now, we have this expression in America when we talk about someone being salty. Right? What do we mean by that? We're talking about them being unfriendly. That's a nice way of saying it. person is mean, or really, somebody is destructive. They're salty. That's essentially the opposite of the meaning that you find in Scripture. When somebody is salty, or when you're salty with someone, or if you said, even to this day, in fact, in the Middle Eastern cultures, if you said, there is salt between us, they're talking about a healthy and binding and good and healthy relationship. It is all of that wrapped together. It doesn't mean that there are problems between two parties. It doesn't mean that there's a war. To say that there is salt between us is to say that there is an undeniable, there is an unbinding bond between us. Have salt. So when Jesus says that disciples are to be the salt of the earth, I think he's reminding them that they are to be a covenant people, a bound people to the relationship that they have made with God because God has extended that relationship first to them, which is another way of saying that God binds himself to a people and they are to work out, this people is to work out that relationship in love and peace and kindness and gentleness in and through them. He is working through this people, and as partners of this covenant with God, they are surrendering themselves in a covenant of grace in order to display that grace. So alongside of salt meaning a covenant bond between God and a particular people, I do think he also has this intention of what we were talking about a second ago, that salt has a flavoring. Salt also has this preserving effect as well. Church, I intend for this to come across as gentle as possible. If we are the salt of the earth as His church, we cannot draw others into the goodness of Christ by enticing them in untasteful, ungratifying ways. In fact, it should be the opposite. If we want to draw people into the goodness of Christ, we should be very deliberate, intentional, and tasteful, gratifying and appealing ways so that, here's the warning that Jesus says, you're not thrown out and trampled underfoot. If we are the salt of the earth, we cannot dishonor Christ. We must preserve, we must cultivate, we must steward our homes and our neighborhoods and our city. Then again, we deserve, if we don't do that, we deserve to be thrown out. 
we deserve to be trampled underfoot because we're not actually understanding the amount of grace and love that has been extended to us. Jesus is definitely giving a warning in verse 13 of being thrown out. And I understand this might sound harsh because it comes across that way. But it's in the harshest of times, those moments, when you give those harsh reminders to people that it is a warning for them to turn back away from the ways that they might be going. Because at the same time, Christ's body, this church, exists to expose the Jesus who binds himself to a broken and rebellious people. It is the church that exists in order to exalt this Jesus who satisfies our deepest hungers. It is the very mission of the church that we exist in order to exhibit that this Jesus doesn't forget the world. He doesn't run away from it. And in fact, He takes on flesh and lives alongside of it to cultivate it, to preserve it, to restore it, to redeem it, so that others might be drawn into that love. Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone and everything in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's take a little unscientific poll. You ready? Let's say the electricity goes out. You know it's out. You see the darkness in the house. You walk into a room. What does your hand do? Flips that switch. How many have done it? I expect 100%. Okay? We have all done this. We know that it's dark. We know that this light switch turns on the light and it fills the entire room of darkness with light. Jesus is tying a similar metaphor for his own audience in his day, and he's actually tying it very close to the church. You are the lamp. You are the light in the many dark places. As I was pulling together this sermon this past week, and I kept saying you are the light in this darkness, I couldn't help but think of the prayer that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You might have been taught it as a child or you might have heard it at some point. Let me read it to you. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. And it ends like this. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive. It is in the pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in the dying that we reap eternal life. Amen. Where there is darkness, church, we are to be the ones who sow light. That was the prayer that Francis of Assisi was getting after. Of course, 
we as the light of the earth are to point to the true light where we get our substance and truth from. As John writes in his own gospel, what has come into being to, in him was life, and the life was the light of all people, the light that which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is describing you, every single one of you, as a beacon. He's describing you as a lighthouse. You are to get your light from him, the true light of the entire world. And the mission and purpose, I don't know if you've seen a lighthouse in person, but they're usually extremely tall. Anywhere from 120 to upwards of 200 feet above sea level. The mission and purpose of a lighthouse is, of course, to help ships and boats navigate through inclement or even hazardous weather. Through any dense fog, a actual lighthouse can be seen for upwards of 20 miles on a clear night further than that. It's a beacon of safe haven. It is a beacon of security and of hope and really of home because we associate being on land on the earth as home. Why should we consider the mission and the pur purpose of the church any differently? Through the hazards and difficulties in life that you experience and others experience, the church is a beacon for the weary. The church is a beacon for the stranded and the restless. It is a safe haven. It is security. It is hope and it is home. Let us take this seriously for us to live out that mission of the church the expectations that Christ has for us and the intentionality and the deliberateness that He has called us to. Because He says this in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, we started talking about evangelists at the beginning. We saw that it's much bigger, much more broad, which much more holistic than just going door to your door or some sort of preacher yelling at you. It's about being salt and light. To be evangelicals, to be evangel evangelists, to be uh, ones who proclaim evangelisms is caught up in what Jesus is talking about as salt and light. And we are to demonstrate that salt and light. A couple of days ago in our professional development day at Gibson County, we had a particular speaker uh, on behalf of uh, Scarlet Rope Project. Some of you might be familiar with that particular organization. If you're not, I'll let you know what it is here in a second. But we heard this testimony of this lady towards the end of this uh, detailed uh, understanding and outline of, of this project. This is a woman who is trafficked from city to city. This is a woman who her body was used in multiple ways. This is a woman who had been literally sold and bought numerous times. And this is a woman who had been purposely enslaved with drugs. Get her hooked, she won't run away. We'll keep her on the chain. 
She had been drug-free now for several years because of the work and mission of Scarlet Rope Project, which exists to free and it exists to liberate women, children, and yes, even some men who have been tied up in the bondages of human trafficking. And let me just say, if you have some free time this afternoon, look at the Scarlet Rope Project, you wouldn't think that human slavery exists today. We are greatly naive. Well over 250,000 individuals are currently being human trafficked in the United States right now. There's so many types of bondages in this world, not just literal human bondages, human enslavement, bondages that we have sometimes to self-centeredness. I'm guilty of that. Bondages to hatred, bondages to money, to pornography, to self-damage, to recognition, self-recognition, and so on and so forth. There are so many different types of bondage that we see and even try to defeat ourselves. We, even in our messes, messes, we recognize that Jesus is our salt. He is the one who binds himself to us. He covenants with us to purify us, to preserve us to himself. Jesus is our light. He is our safe haven. He is our hope. He is our home. And of course, yes, Jesus is that city set upon a hill. He is the new Jerusalem. He is the place of God's very presence on earth. He is the Eden who brings us into rest. And of course, the perfect communion with the Father. At the same time, because we're united with Christ through faith, we share in that mission too. You are good newsers. You are the ones who are the salt. You are the ones who are the light. You're the ones who are a city set upon a hill. Hickory Grove, as we lean into the Spirit of Christ this year, let's do it with intentionality in our worship, in the community that we are here, in the care that we provide to one another, the care we provide to our community around us. And then I think we'll see that Christ is indeed living in and through us and displaying His redemptive mission, that He is indeed sending salt into the earth, us. He is sending light into our communities, us. And of course, we are the ones who are existing so that others can be fed and so others can also be found. Let's do that with great intentionality in this year of 2020. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For it is in the reminder that the Word is one that gives life. And that you, in this time, are the one who speaks in and through your Word. You use it in order to exalt your own name. You use it in such a way to grab our attention and our hearts so that we can understand the mission of what it means to be salt to be light, to be that city set upon a hill. And so, Father, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us when we run from you. As rebellious as our hearts are, as no matter how far we run away, here you are chasing after us. And so, Lord, we give thanks for that this day.
a God who chases, doesn't run away, but chases after a broken people. And so may we continue to be that salt and light for the broken world, the world that is hungry around us, the world around us that wants to be found. We offer these things in the name of your Son. Amen.